If you are visiting this morning, I just want to welcome you. I know some of the students are back in, in town and more will descend upon the churches next week. And so if you're here visiting with us for the first time, welcome. We, uh, we thank you. I have a question for you and also for you who were here last week and the week before and the week before. Here's the question. Is it possible to make a difference in the world? Now think about that question. Is it possible to make a difference in the world? Let me, let me be more specific to us who are gathered here this morning claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. Can we as followers of Jesus Christ really do good? Can we? Or should we just conclude that the world is on a bobsled ride to Hades and we're just hanging on? Now, we're going to get off before it hits the bottom, right? The trumpet's going to sound. I mean, God's just going to call time out and He's going to say, okay, everyone who's mine, you can get off and it's going to be right before it hits. Do you just conclude that that's the, that that's the reality? Surely you know and we know that, that God is the one who has to do the heart work and He is at work and... We know that how everything is, is going to end. But the answer to that question, can we make a difference? Can followers of Jesus Christ really do good? Is a resounding yes, you can. In fact, one of the four activities of a Spirit-filled life, one of the four activities that every Christian must be engaged in, as we've been looking in Galatians chapter 6, has to do with doing good. has to do with doing good works. I understand it's easy to become cynical and give up. I understand it's easy to do that. And God understands it's easy to do that. As you're going to see in the passage today, we're even encouraged not to give up. We're encouraged not to lose heart because of something good that, that is coming. The Bible tells us to be like Christ and renew our minds. And the Bible, is, the Bible tells us to give of our resources. It tells us to be a lot, but it also tells us to do a lot. The passage you probably all know, Matthew five sixteen: Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God even goes so far as as focusing on, on good works in, in James, that he says that, that if you don't do good, if good works, good fruit is not part of your life, then, then you don't have saving faith. Now, you don't want to get that reversed, and we preach a lot about that. You can't work your way to heaven. Your good works won't get you to heaven. But the Bible says if you're going to heaven, fruit will follow. You'll know them by their fruits. One of the evidences that you are truly regenerate and that you're saved is it's not what we say, but what we do, surely what we say is part of it, but your profession, the profession that you are, that you believe upon Jesus, you're trusting in Him, you've repented in your, of your sins, what you say matches what comes out of your life because you've been transformed from the inside and that manifests itself outside. James 2, 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Doing good is an action of a spiritual person. Well, if you're not there, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to finish up this, this series today where God's outlined four activities every church member must fulfill. If they want to grow, they want the church to grow, they want it to be healthy. Galatians is, is this contrast between the Spirit and, and the law. 
Chapter 5 is about life in the Spirit. There's the works of the flesh. There's the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, talks about you who are spiritual. You have the Spirit living in you. You who are bearing the fruit of the, of the Spirit. This is what your life will look like. This is how you'll act. And he tells us there, he begins in chapter 6, verse 1, you'll bear other people's burdens. You'll be a restorer. You'll also carry your own load. In verse 5, you, you will participate. In verse 6, we looked at last time, you will share your resources to in the church where you're ministered to. And then in verse 10, he says, as we have opportunity do good to all, especially those who are of the household of, of faith. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. That's the being part. You can't control the fruit of the Spirit. If you are a tomato plant, you can't, no matter, no matter how hard you struggle and strain as a tomato plant, you can't pop a tomato out, right? You grow tomatoes because you're a tomato plant. You soak up the sun, you soak up the rain, you're in the ground. The Spirit bears His fruit in your life. And one of the fruits that the Spirit bears, if you're saved, is goodness. But He also, here in chapter 6, talks about actions. We are to do good in verse 10. And you can't do without being, for sure. But Paul ends Galatians with the point that Christianity leads to action. Christianity leads to action. Let's read, and we'll begin at verse 6, and we'll end with verse 10, and then we'll try to unpack what the Lord has to say here. It says, Let him who is taught, verse 6, him who is taught the word, share in all good things, there's that word, with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life, or life everlasting. Now here's the encouragement, verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, right after God covers our responsibilities about giving, in verse 6, He gives a warning and an encouragement about the law of the, of the harvest. And He ends with this command to do good whenever opportunity presents itself. And the Bible often uses very plain illustrations to teach spiritual truths. Jesus taught in parables quite a bit. Now, I didn't go back and count them, but, but Locklear Herbert said that there was a book, a book that he wrote, The Parables of the Bible. He said there's over 250 of those little stories that, that are there. And so what connects the first six, let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. You share good things. You share your, your, your gifts with the church. And this verse 10, doing good, is this garden principle. It's law of sowing and reaping. You've probably heard sermons from this before. Just like there are physical laws that are constant, there are also spiritual laws. And they're just as applicable. You wouldn't ignore the law of gravity. 
You probably don't pay attention to it on a regular basis. The law of gravity is, is active right now. It's holding you to the pew. It's holding me down to the ground. But you're probably a lot more aware of the law of gravity if you're on a ladder on the side of your house painting or something, right? I'm very aware. I pay attention to the law of gravity. I don't particularly like heights once I get over about 15 feet or so. Paul doesn't want us to ignore the law, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping in the Christian life. What you and I sow in the garden of our lives will come up in harvest one day. And God wants that harvest to be to be good. So I would say, if we're going to look at verses 7 through 10, and there are three motivations, I think, that you can take away from this passage. Three motivations to serve by doing good to others. And you're going to hear me emphasize the do part, the act part. The first one is found in verses 7 and 8, and that is, the motivation is the law of harvest. Look at verse 7. He begins with a warning here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's the second time that we, we, we've been warned about deception. Look back at verse 3, chapter 6. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And now he begins this, uh, this law of the harvest, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. But they're two completely different words. Those are two different types of deception. Verse 3, there's the wrong perception of mankind. You, have the, you can have the wrong perception of yourself. You can think that you're something when, in fact, you're, you're nothing. That's, that's a matter of faulty evaluation. I evaluate myself on the wrong scale. We do that on a regular basis. We compare ourselves to others. Isn't it funny that we never, when we compare ourselves to others, we always find somebody worse than us rather than better than us? You can have a faulty evaluation of yourselves. And every person here is, is evaluated is measured against the law of, of God. And, and the Bible says when, when that happens, we all come up short. We all need a Savior. We're all in the same boat. So you can have a faulty. Don't be deceived. You can be self-deceived and have a faulty evaluation of yourself. But verse 7, this is the wrong perspective of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't be led astray. It's a matter of faulty expectation. You have a faulty evaluation of yourself. This is a, a matter of faulty expectation because he goes on to say, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The for is the explanation. Don't be deceived about God. Don't be deceived about this spiritual principle. Don't be deceived about this, this matter of, of sowing and, and, and reaping because God is not mocked. Now, what does that mean? God is not, is not mocked. I can remember um, being in an inner tube on the Greenbrier River fishing. And I can remember being with a bunch of sad to my shame drinking buddies. And, and I can remember a lightning storm came about. And one of the guys that was there was, uh, was in the Marine Corps, really tough guy, Jimmy Lieber. He was in my wedding. And, um, but he got struck by lightning not once, Twice at Camp Lejeune whenever he was in the Marine Corps. So lightning strikes more than once? Yes, it does. i got a man who's a testimony. So whenever lightning came around, I don't care. I mean, this guy's 6'2", 6'3", tough Marine. He's gone, right? And we're in, the, we're in the inner tubes on the water, and a lightning storm comes. And, you know, and some doofus that's with me said, well, we're in, we're in inner tubes. It won't bother us, right? How stupid is that? There's rubber. So we're out of the water. 
But I can remember one of the guys that just had contempt for God. Wanted to be tough. He just kept right on floating. He said, I don't care. God can strike me dead. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Is that the kind of mocking, shaking your puny fist at God's face? Well, obviously it could apply, but that's not specifically what he's talking about here. The idea of mocking is turning one's nose up to hold God in contempt. It's, it's kind of like um, taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, clearly that is, you know, has to do with cursing. I remember Jerry Falwell saying one of the reasons, one of the proofs that Jesus Christ is truly God is when somebody hits their finger with a hammer, you never hear him say, Oh, Buddha, right? They always curse the Lord. Why do they curse the Lord? Because Jesus is the Lord. So it's like taking God's name in vain. It's not just, it's not just saying the words. It's, it's applying something to God that's not God. It's attributing something to God that, that God didn't do. And this idea here, God is not mocked, holding God in contempt, is holding His promises in vain, holding His word in vain. You, you hold God in contempt when you deny the truth or pretend that actions won't catch up with you. And Paul says there's two ways that we do that. We, we hold God in, in, in contempt here. We say we hear what you say, but that's not going to happen. And that has to do with this idea of reaping and sowing. Thinking we will reap where we've not sown, and thinking we will reap what we have not sown. That's what he says. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about God. Well, what can you be deceived about God? God, don't hold him in contempt. Don't hold what he says in contempt. But what does God say? God says whatever a man sows, or a woman sows, they will also Reap And to deny that principle is to hold God in contempt, to take His promise in, in, in vain. Thinking you can reap where you've not sown, or what you've not sown, is to hold God's Word in contempt, because He says otherwise. Now, you shouldn't expect to reap if you've not sown. It's a principle. I mean, only a foolish farmer goes out into the field. Have you ever seen a farmer go out into the field? They prepare it. They plow it. They do all of this work. They water it. They fertilize it. But they never put any seed in the ground. Wouldn't that be foolish? Well, God says, don't be foolish. Don't do all of this work in the Christian life and never put any seed in the ground. Expect something to, to come up. Of course God could zap a seed out of the sky. I mean, how many times have you witnessed to somebody and you have nothing to do with it and the fruit falls off in your hand? Well, somebody else has been there before you. God can do whatever He wants to do, but... but don't think that God works in always in the supernatural, the miraculous. Here, he's saying, you shouldn't expect righteousness to come up in your walk with Christ, in your marriage, in your children, in, in, in your finances, in whatever it is, if you're not sowing anything good. When you expect otherwise, Galatians says that you're treating God with contempt. You're taking His promise in vain. Yeah, yeah, I know that's what it says, but that won't happen in my life. And we do it. We're guilty of it. He also says, though, that you should not expect to reap what you have not sown. Only a foolish farmer, going back to our example, would prepare his field, plow it, fertilize it, and plant corn and expect beans to come up. Have you ever went out and planted a garden and forgot to put the, you know, the little seed packets there and you forget what you planted? You say, now, hmm, wonder what that was. What do you do? 
Well, when it's in the dirt, you can't tell, so you wait till something begins to pop up out there. Oh, okay, that leaf right there, I know what that looks like. That's a, you know, that's a leaf of, of, of a corn plant or a bean plant. He says, don't sow gossip and jealousy and selfishness and expect to have a harvest of peace and friends. When we sow laziness and intemperance, don't expect self-control. God says don't expect grapes to come up when you sow poison ivy. He goes on to explain what he means in particular, though. Look at verse 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. This is all still in this harvest principle, this gardening principle. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That little word for tells us it's a simple explanation, but it holds great hope for the child of God. The stern warning of verse 7, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. There's an even stronger hope given in verse 8. Frankly, whenever I read verse 7, I don't find a whole lot of hope because I'm a sinner. I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you because the Bible says whether you admit it or not, it's a different thing. Frankly, because the law of sowing and reaping I'm being, being a sinner and still in unredeemed flesh. That's just kind of a depressing principle at times. I mean, how many in here would wants to yield all the seed that you put in ground in your life? Okay, yeah, that's the harvest I want. You want that harvest? I don't want that harvest because I put some pretty ugly things in the ground. There's some pretty rotten weeds. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7. I'm going to apply Romans 7 to Galatians. Paul says, I'm constantly sowing what I don't want to reap, and the things that I do want to reap, I find I don't sow. Same principle. But in verse 8, he gives us some good news. Good news. Where's the good news in verse 8? He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That's not good news. It's a fact, but it's not good news. But, ah, here's the good news. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's the hope for the believer. And while we're weak and we're sinful at times, God has given us a new field to plant in. A Christian has options. Isn't it nice to have options? I like having options. Christian has an option of fields. What you plant will come up, but you have an option as a believer. Now, an unbeliever, you don't have an option. As an unbeliever, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. All of your works are filthy rags. You are totally unable to do anything morally good before God. That doesn't mean that you can't help an old lady across the street, or you might not be compassionate in some way, or a young man. Be politically correct there. But you can't do anything of value to God. An unbeliever only has one field that you can sow in. You're a slave to sin. No matter how hard you try, apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. There's only one harvest that you're going to reap. It's right there. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap destruction, corruption. The Bible says, apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And an unbeliever is limited to only one field. But a believer has two fields to choose from. You can sow to the flesh. Or you can sow to the Spirit. And it takes us back to chapter 5, where he gives the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And, and, and there's, this, there's this, this struggle, because 
you're not a spiritual schizophrenic. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus, but that new creature is in a fallen world and you still have unredeemed flesh. Redemption is not complete yet. And he lists what you can expect. So to the flesh, you'll get adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, revelries. And so to the Spirit, you'll get love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. But notice what Paul does here. He he brings us to the end game in verse 8. He doesn't relist all of those things. He takes us to the end. He gives us the final judgment. Verse 8, For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap, not a list, he'll reap final conclusion, he'll reap corruption. When the landowner comes back to check the crops, corruption, the word means destruction or ruin. It's used for decaying food, what is worthless to eat. And here, Paul says, the overall condition of the crop sown in the flesh is bad. It's going to bring destruction. And he says when the master comes to check out the crop, if you've sown unwisely, your crop can be can be sparse as a Christian. If you're an unbeliever, there's no hope. For a Christian, you'll stand before the Lord and give an account what you've done in the body, whether it's good or whether it's evil. Now, we go to the beach every year on vacation, at least we have in the past, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of fields that are planted that you can see. You're driving down the road and you just see row after row after row after row of corn. When I was in Kansas City, there's just corn out there everywhere. Corn means big white-tailed deer and bow hunting, but I digress. You just see these row after row after row after row after row, and then all of a sudden you'll just see this bear patch. And, and you're like, what happened there? And then more corn, corn, corn. You know, did the, did, the, did the tractor malfunction? He's not here, but was Dan Summers driving the tractor and he forget to engage it? I don't know. What, what happened? Can you imagine... There are times when, 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 when you just come on one of those places. Can you imagine taking a walk in the field of your life with, with Christ and coming upon the rows where there's only weeds or a barren place? I'd say that probably won't be a pleasant experience. Oh, you know, here's a corn row, corn, corn, corn. Well, what happened here? That can happen for a Christian. You can sow to the flesh, but now he gives the flip side. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Again, he doesn't list the fruit of the Spirit. He gives the conclusion. You're going to reap life everlasting. The conclusion of one's life that proves that they're a believer. Now, eternal life, this primarily doesn't mean length, but, but kind of life. Of course, we're going to live forever. Of course... A believer is going to live forever, but you possess eternal life at the moment that you're saved. You possess the life of Christ. John 17, 3, And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you sent. Listen to John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has, present tense, Everlasting life, 
and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. And as a Christian, there's encouragement. You have the choice of which field you, you sow in. And if you sow to the Spirit, the end result is a conclusion that eternal life lives in you. But he doesn't stop with the encouragement. Look at verse 9. After you go through the law of the harvest in verses 7 and 8, there's a promise of success. There's the law of the harvest. And there's also, number two, second motivation, there's a promise of success. Verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, or in well-doing. For, why should you not grow weary in doing good? Because in due time, in due season, you shall reap. It's a promise. It's not a might reap. You shall. It's a conclusion of the law of the harvest. If we do not lose heart, there's a promise of reaping. Verse 9, there's a promise from God that you will reap reward for your labor. If you're a lady in here, you can relate to this principle. You ever clean your house? You ever do laundry? And the next day, this pile is not smaller but bigger. And although you know you've done about four or five loads. Well, around our house, I hear this principle on a regular basis. It's clean, 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 and just to get it dirty again. It's, isn't it... Isn't it uh, enjoyable, men, whenever you're mowing the grass and you, you see, the, the, when you look back, you can tell where you've been and you feel productive. You know what are the wonderful things about heaven is going to be? Whatever you put your hands to, it will accomplish the purpose. I mean, part of the fall is that creation will fight against you. It doesn't mean there won't be repetition in heaven. It just means that, that part of the fall is whatever you put your hands to, it it, it can falter. It can fail. You have to do it again. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't end the way that you planned it. Well, in heaven, it's, it's going to be different. And God promises here not to grow weary, whether you can see the progress or whether you can't see the progress. And lots of times you can't see the progress in your Christian life. Have you ever witnessed to somebody for a really, really long time and they make no movement whatsoever? Isn't it tempting to just say, well, I'm going to stop praying, I'm going to stop sharing? God says, don't, because you will have a reward one day. It doesn't automatically mean that person for sure is going to get saved. But it says in due season, you'll, you'll reap. You know what verse 9 says? Don't quit because payday's coming. It uses other words, but that's what it says. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel because it will be worth it in the end. Struggle is part of life. You understand that? It's part of life. You come to Christ, it doesn't mean your struggles are going to go away. Struggle is part of life. William Batten said, When I hear my friends say they hope their children don't have to experience the hardships that they went through, I totally disagree. <laughs> Those hardships made us what we are. You can be disadvantaged in many ways. In one way, maybe not having had to struggle. Is it possible to make someone's life too easy? Sure is. Just look in the projects. You can see lives that sometimes are made too easy. There are more bad days sometimes than good days. But what are you going to do? Quit? You can't if you're saved. There's just something in you that won't let you do that. It's called perseverance of the saints. 
God who began a good work in you will perform it, will continue it until the day. There are plenty of days that you wanted to say, I can't go any further, I want to give up, but, but there's something in you that just won't let you. Well, that's a work of the Spirit. But God here gives a promise, a channel for that Spirit motivation to run. Verse 9, let us not grow weary while well-doing, for in due season we shall reap. Don't give up. Payday's coming. The thing that keeps me going, keeps you going in those times is there's coming a day when the last race will be run, when the finish line will be in sight. And for some of you, you know that that's sooner than you probably think because we're not promised another day. And there at that place, at that moment, when you stand before the Lord Jesus, the Bible promises you your reward. And you long to hear, well done, right? Let us not literally lose heart. Did you know one of the dangers, the great dangers of our souls, is to become tired of serving Christ? Now, that might sound weird, but losing heart means to become discouraged. It means to lose your desire to continue doing something. It means to come to the point where, where you say, what's the use? You come to the point where you say, it, it, it makes no difference anyhow. And when you begin to entertain those thoughts too long, it can make you cowardly in your faith. That's the other thing that the word means. It was a word used for cowardness. Lose heart. Lose heart in the, in the midst of the battle to shrink away from, from the fight. And when you begin to doubt the promise, it's easy to shrink away. A person who loses heart says, it doesn't matter if I do this or that, it's not going to change the outcome. That's the person who is losing heart. You know, why try to protect my kids? They're all going to turn out the same way anyway. Why be helpful to my husband or my wife? It's not going to help my marriage anyway. Why read the Bible? Why give? Why work? Why show up at a Planned Parenthood protest? Why do it? It's not going to matter. That's called fatalism. That's called losing heart. And he says, don't do that. You have the promise of reward. John Piper said, probably the worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. Human beings have a remarkable and sad capacity for getting tired of wonderful things. Almost every one of you can think of something you were enthusiastic about recently and now that joy has faded. Your first day of vacation on the coast, the sunset was breathtaking and it made you so happy that you could sing, but by the end of your vacation, you hardly noticed it anymore. Vacationers get tired of sunsets, millionaires get tired of money, kids get tired of toys, and Christians get tired of doing good, so don't lose heart. Because there's opportunities that are before you. Look at verse 10. Here's the final point. Verse 10 ends in a conclusive statement. There's an opportunity to do good. Three motivations, law of the harvest, the promise of success, and the opportunity to do good. The verse begins with a conclusive statement, Therefore, or so then, on the basis of all of what I've just said, about the law of harvest, the choice of the field, the promise of the reward, if you don't faint, 
as you have opportunity, let us work the good. There's a, there's a definite article here. It's, it's the good. It's action. What are you doing for the Lord? Oh, I ask you all the time, what are you being? How is the Spirit of God working in your life? How are you being renewed in your mind? What are you doing for the Lord? I mean, really doing. Where are you serving? Where can you say, this is my part of the wall to man at Timberlake Baptist Church here in, in the kingdom? This is my spot. If, if I'm not at this spot, then there is an opening in the wall. But this is where I stand. Every Christian needs to be under the Word. Every Christian needs fellowship. Every Christian needs to have outreach. But every Christian needs to be engaging in activity, in actions, in serving in the body. And that's doing the good. Where are you? Do you have a specific place? If you were to make a list of your deeds or actions that were for God, how many would really be there? If the list is sparse, it's not too late. He can still get busy for the Lord. The bobsled's still going downhill. Jesus is still bringing people onto the bobsled, to saving them to call them out whenever the trumpet ha- you know, sounds. But as long as Christ is on the throne, it's never too late. Your life can be used by the Lord. Adrian Rogers, what pithy statements he would come up with. He puts Bill O'Reilly to shame, doesn't he? Adrian Rogers said, Many a boy will spend more time laboring to whistle than a man or woman will laboring for God. The word opportunity is a, is, is a word for a fixed. Let us, as we have opportunity, therefore, on all of this, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Opportunity is a fixed, distinct period of time. Our time on the earth will soon pass. Then there will be no more time to work for the Master. How many times have you said in the past month, boy, time flies. You feel it. Now, why does a, why does a three-year-old feel like it takes forever for the beach to roll around or whatever else it is? Because, because they've only lived three years. So a whole year from one year to the next is a whole third of their life. But, but we just keep getting older and uglier and older and uglier, right? You do. And you go, man, time flies. And we were sitting at the dinner table the other night, and Tracy looked at me and said, Our kids are huge. So they are. Yeah, you're right. They are. I felt the same thing. Eighty years seems like a long time whenever you're 16 or 18 or 20 or 30. But whenever you get into eternity, 80 years will seem like an utterly inadequate lifespan for the sake of Christ. 84. 84, Amen. You're on borrowed time, aren't you? We all are. Buy up opportunities while you may, is Paul's counsel. Plant seeds in the Spirit while there's time. You have one life and there's opportunities that's there. So use it and do good. Don't look at something like what happened on Saturday and and complain it could be a whole lot better. Of course there's nut jobs there. There's nut jobs everywhere. You're a nut job half of the time. Get busy doing something for the Lord. Stop looking outward and start looking inward. Stop. As B.R. Lakin said, looking like you come to church with a Bible under one arm and a tombstone under the other. 
Sucking on a prune, he would go on to say. Well, I'm meddling now, aren't I? Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. But look at this. Especially those who are of the household of faith. You're to do the good to all. You're to, you're to, you're to serve. But especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you find that odd? I mean, wouldn't you expect him to say that the time is short, you have the opportunity because men are lost, so do good to all, but especially to the unsaved. I mean, that's what logic would say, but that's not what he says. He says, do good especially to those in the church, the household of faith. You know why? Because if you won't do good to your brother or sister that's sitting beside you, you'll not do good to an unbeliever who hates you. (laughs) If you won't witness to somebody across the street, what makes you think that you're going to go win the world to Jesus halfway across the globe? Which is harder, witnessing to somebody that you don't know or witnessing to your family members that's going to see you next Thanksgiving and be able to evaluate your, your life. 1 John 3.14 says, We know we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. One of the evidences that you're a believer is that you love other Christians. It's not that you love the lost. Oh, you should love the lost. Because he who loves, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. You want to see people taste the same thing. But Jesus says... You give evidence that you're saved by loving the brethren. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And Paul says, how do you expect to do good to those outside of the church if you won't do good to those who are inside of the church? How do you expect to be committed to those outside of the church if you won't be committed in deeds and service to those who are inside the church? We don't have time to go there, but write down 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 29, because he gives the same principle there. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 29. That's the passage where if you're invited to an unbeliever's house and they said, I don't meet before you. And another Christian's there who might be offended. It would be better to offend the unbeliever than offend the believer. He gives the same principle. Because then the other believer will conclude it would be better to be an unbeliever than a believer. As we have opportunity, do good to all men, but especially the brethren. You say, that's great, I see it. It's right here, black and white, plain as day. Pastor, where do I start? Maybe this will help. Time Magazine, several years ago, uh, told about a doctor who lived through the bombing of, of Hiroshima. He was a physician. And when the blast occurred, he was, he was waiting for a streetcar about a mile away from the center of the, of the blast. A horrible thing that the Japanese leadership required the President of the United States to do to save millions of lives and end the war. He was sheltering by the corner of a concrete building whenever the blast came. Within seconds after the explosion, it says his ears were filled with screams of victims all around him. Not really knowing what happened, he stood there for a moment, bewildered, and and here was one doctor wondering how he could even handle this mountain of patients. 
And then still somewhat stunned, Dr. Shigito knelt and opened his black bag and began treating the person lying at his feet. When you're faced with the spiritual needs of a lost world, of being overwhelmed with your own heart, failures, difficulties, don't despair, just just do good to the patient that's laying right there at your feet. Just take the next step. Whatever is in front of you next to obey, just obey that. And then once you do that, just obey the next thing. And once you do that, then just obey the next thing. And the next thing you know, when you look back, you're going to be pretty far down the track. But if you stand back and look and say, oh, it's overwhelming, then you'll just sit there and never do anything. Do good. Start with those who are around you. Start with people who have needs in your family, in your life. Do it because there's a day of reckoning. God's not mocked. Do it because there's a promise of reaping. Do it because there's a limited opportunity. But do it. Go home and do it to your spouse. Start tomorrow. Do good to your co-worker, your boss. Find a need in the church and meet it. It doesn't have to be big to do good. So says the Lord in His Word. Let's pray together.